Let's turn our Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. Some of you uh, maybe are, some of you are our guests for the first time. We're studying through the book of Daniel on Sunday mornings. And uh, so we arrived at the fourth chapter, and that's where we're going to be today in our study. King Canute ruled over Denmark, Norway, and England about a thousand years ago, and, ago, and he was a wise ruler, and uh, he, was, uh, he was very diligent at trying to promote his, uh, his subjects and better their lives, uh, like it is the case, I think, with a lot of leaders, people wanted to gather around him to, to gain from his prominence and his influence, but he grew tired of their flattery. And so one day he determined to do something about it, so he had them carry his throne down to the beach and all of his flatterers were to come with him. And as the story goes, the king commanded the tide not to come in and then sat in his chair. And yet soon the waters were lapping all around his legs and the tide did not heed him. And according to one historian account, King Canute stood up from his throne and he said, and I quote, Let all men know how empty and worthless is the power of kings, for there is none worthy of the name but he whom heaven, earth, and the sea obey by eternal laws. Now our story today in Daniel chapter 4 is about a king, a king who didn't know what King Canute knew, at least at first, but would soon discover it. And of course that king is Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. This fourth chapter of, ne of Daniel begins with Nebuchadnezzar's praise, and it's going to end with Nebuchadnezzar's praise as well. Chapter 4, verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. It's really interesting in, uh, in that though this chapter falls in the book of Daniel, it's not, and Daniel's actually in it, he didn't write it. This chapter, except for a little section in the middle, is written in the first person by King Nebuchadnezzar. This is Nebuchadnezzar's story. He says, it seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. So this is, in essence, Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. A testimony is simply your story. It's your story. This is Nebuchadnezzar's story. Now one thing that Nebuchadnezzar has become convinced of, as he tells us here at the beginning, is that God's kingdom and God's dominion is everlasting, extending from generation to generation. But that's not on his radar at first. Verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. And I saw a dream, and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my bed, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. And then the magicians and the conjurers and the Chaldeans and the diviners came in, and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. But finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream, which I have seen, along with its interpretation. 
And Nebuchadnezzar is late in life. He's an older man. In fact, he's not going to live too many more years after this. But just like the dream in chapter 2 of the book of Daniel, this dream distresses him. And so he calls for his wise men and he says, I don't get this dream. Help me understand this dream. It's causing me great distress. Interpret it for me. And none of them could, or none of them would, one or the other. Some have suggested that they wouldn't. They knew it had something to do with him, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't interpret it for him because they were afraid of what Nebuchadnezzar might do if they brought him bad news. In fact, some have suggested that those are the misgivings that Daniel had as well as we'll see in just a moment. It's interesting in verse 8, if you're looking at the text, it's interesting in verse 8 that, that Nebuchadnezzar calls Daniel by his Hebrew name, Daniel. But, but he identifies him as Belteshazzar, the name according to his gods. Now, Mike and I were talking about this this week, and, uh, and here's my speculation. I shared it with Micah, but here's my speculation. Nebuchadnezzar is either writing this as a testimony to a Jewish audience, and so he wants them to know that Belteshazzar, whom he addresses throughout the, the story, is really Daniel. So he's writing this as a testimony to the Jews. I think that might be one possibility for why he calls him Daniel. But I have another suggestion, and I think, personally, I think this is the more accurate one, and that is that I believe Nebuchadnezzar's had an experience with Jehovah. He's had an experience with the God of Israel. And, and I think from this point on, in his personal relationship with Daniel, he's going to call Daniel by his Hebrew God-given name, not his name according to his gods, Belteshazzar. But in this testimony, he has to identify the two names as the same person. So I think that's why he is referring to Daniel as Daniel. But that is interesting, isn't it? That Nebuchadnezzar, in his testimony, doesn't just refer to him as Belteshazzar, but refers to him as Daniel. Verse 10. Now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height, with, its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached the sky. And it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its foliage, foliage was beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and it was food for all. And the beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves from it. It's a pretty straightforward dream. Nebuchadnezzar sees this huge tree. It's so large, he says, that it can be seen to the ends of the earth. And this tree is a blessing to all the creatures. They live under it. They live in it. They find food from it. This tree is a blessing to all. Verse 13. I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. And he shouted out and spoke as follows, chop down the tree and cut off its branches, strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. Now, the second half of the dream isn't any more scary, I think, than the first half, although it's quite a contrast, isn't it? The watcher, who is presumably an angel of the Lord, makes a pronouncement. And this beautiful, magnificent tree that, that Nebuchadnezzar sees in his dream is cut down and it's destroyed, it's delimbed, and, and all the animals that had benefited from it are scattered. And, but, but the angel says, leave the, leave the stump, bind it up, leave its roots in the ground. Then the angel goes on in his talking, and he turns from talking about the tree to talking about a, a he, 
Let's look at the text, verse 15. And let him be drenched with, dew of, with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beast in the grass of the earth. And let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let a beast mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets it over the lowliest of men. Again, it's pretty self-explanatory. The he now becomes someone who has the mind of a man, but now has been given the mind of an animal. And so this person who now has the mind of an animal will live out in the field, drenched in the dew, eating the grass like the animals, and his mind will be altered for a period of se- for seven periods of time. And this, he sa- it says in the dream, that this angelic watcher says to, to, I guess, Nebuchadnezzar in his mind in the dream, he says, and this is the decree of the angels and the decision of the holy ones. And then the angel adds the reason for this. And the reason is so that in the land of the living, the living may know that the Most High rules over the realm of mankind, and God bestows it on whomever he wishes. Verse 18. This is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, tell me its interpretation, inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me its interpretation. But you are able for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Now remember that Nebuchadnezzar is recounting in his testimony, this is what he said. I don't really believe this is what Nebuchadnezzar believes anymore. Interesting that no one can interpret the dream. Again, many have suggested that nobody wanted to interpret the dream because if they understood it to be bad news for Nebuchadnezzar, nobody wanted to bring bad news for King Nebuchadnezzar because he might just say, off with your head for, for such bad news. And so People have suggested that's the case with Daniel. Verse 19, Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. And the king responded and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar replied, My lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. Daniel is upset with the dream. And he could be upset because he fears for his life too, and he doesn't want to tell the, tell the king what the dream means. Uh, but the king reassures him. He evidently sees his hesitancy, and he says, Daniel, tell me what this means. And uh, I want to suggest that Daniel's issue isn't fear. He's watched his three friends go into the furnace of fire and not die, right? He, he watched God give him a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had ahead of time so that he could tell the king the dream. I I don't think Daniel is afraid. I I think what it is, is there is a degree of affection, evidently, for Nebuchadnezzar on Daniel's part. And Daniel is distressed because of what it says about Nebuchadnezzar the king. And Daniel kind of makes this comment. He says, if only the dream was about your enemies and not about you, if only. Verse 20, he interprets the dream. The tree that you saw which became large and grew strong, whose height reached the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and which uh, was food for all, under which the beast of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the sky lodged. It is you, O king, for you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky, and your dominion to the end of the earth." In that the king saw the angelic watcher, a holy one, descend from heaven and say, chop down the tree and destroy it. 
yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched in the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place be with the beast of the field, and you be given grass to eat like cattle, and be drenched with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And in that it has been commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Now the dream is pretty, is pretty uh, simple, isn't it? You almost say, well, I could have interpreted that, you know. I kind of doubt it. But anyway, uh, it, it seems pretty simple now that we hear Daniel tell him what the dream means. And King Nebuchadnezzar, or at least the kingdom of Babylon, is, is, the, is the big tree that reaches as far as anyone can see. And it's the tree in which people benefit and live under and, and have their being. And see, it, Babylon, was, Babylon was one of the first world empires uh, of our world. And, and Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon is that tree. But there's a sense in which this is referencing, that tree even is referencing Nebuchadnezzar himself. And in the dream, the angel says, cut down the tree, leave the stump. And Daniel says, God is about to drive you to madness. And for seven periods of time, which most interpreters say was seven years, for seven years, you will be like an animal. Your, your mind will be, you will go insane for seven years. And you'll think of yourself as an animal, and you're going to live as an animal for seven years. You'll be drenched by the dew of the day. You'll be eating grass You'll be eating grass and, and all of that. And it's so that, so that you will recognize that God rules over the realm of men. More specifically, so that you will recognize that God rules over your realm. Now, one positive in the interpretation for Nebuchadnezzar is that God tells him that, hey, I'm binding you up, I'm keeping you, so that when you recognize this, I will restore you to your leadership position in the kingdom of Babylon. Verse 27, Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Now, Daniel, this is, this is really neat, and we're going to talk more about this next week, but Daniel advises the king to repent to change his ways, to turn from his sin. And he also says, he says, from your iniquities, and, and the word iniquity there has more to do with uh, being unjust. Turn from your unjustness or your, the injustice that you perpetrate on the poor and show mercy to the poor so that your prosperity may be prolonged. In other words, Daniel is saying to the king, turn from your sin so that God may not do this to you. He, he may relent and he may not choose to do this to you as what he said he's going to do. Turn from your sin, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, how did the king respond to Daniel's words? Well, obviously he didn't kill him. And uh, we're not told with any specificity what, what Nebuchadnezzar's response to this interpretation was. But one thing we do know, he did not listen. Verse 28. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon. 
The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? So I, I want, I'm going to interrupt this reading and just give you a mental picture. Nebuchadnezzar's walking on his roof, and as he's walking on his roof, he's looking out over this vast city that he's been responsible for, all these beautiful buildings. I mean, the city of Babylon was known for its beauty, and as he's walking on the balcony, looking out, and he's praising himself and saying, man, I am just absolutely incredible. Look what I have done by my power and by my might. Verse 31. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beast of the field, and you will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes." In other words, more specifically, the Most High is ruler over the realm, your realm, and bestows it on whoever he wishes. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. I have a good friend who, like Nebuchadnezzar, built himself a substantial empire. It wasn't a a, a country empire. It was a business empire. And I remember one evening my friend telling me, you know, with this faraway look as if imagining what he had built, saying, look at the business I've built by my own power and by my own might. And I can remember, it was sort of late at night, but I can remember how eerily I thought of this very moment in Nebuchadnezzar's life when he's walking in the evening on, on his balcony looking over what he had built. And, and the words were almost identical. Look what I've built by my power and by my might. It is true. It is true that Nebuchadnezzar was responsible for the city of Babylon. In the Br British Museum, there are six columns of writings recovered from Babylon, which describe the huge building projects that Nebuchadnezzar and his zeal to enlarge and beautify the city brought about. Most of the bricks that have been found from the excavation of Babylon bear this stamp on them. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, supporter of Esagila and Ezida, I have no idea what those two words are, uh, exalted firstborn son of Nabopolassar, king of Babylon. So all the bricks that they've recovered from the excavation have those words on them. Now, just a side note here before we move on in the story. You remember we talked about the authenticity of Daniel and how people deny it's, it's being written by Daniel in the time when it's purported to be written. And they say that the reason why it cannot be written then is because it's too accurate. In other words, what it says is too specific to have been done by anybody who lived there forecasting the future. So therefore, it must have been written in the future looking back. That's how the, the supposed prophecies are so accurate. Everybody following me? You know, one of the problems is, or one of the problems with that thinking is that for years and years and years, no one credited Nebuchadnezzar to the beautification of the city of Babylon. No one did. 
And so it wasn't until recent modern archaeology that Daniel's story has been proven true that Nebuchadnezzar was the one responsible for this beautification and this aggrandizement of the city of Babylon. You follow me? So now the late daters of Daniel have no way of understanding how somebody writing in the period of the Maccabeans, say 167 B.C., hundreds of years after Daniel, how they would have ever known that Nebuchadnezzar was the one responsible for the building of the city. My point in all of that is simply to say, you know, uh, history, as it continues to unfold, and archaeology and all, continues to prove the Bible right, not wrong. On this prideful, braggadocious night, Nebuchadnezzar is thinking about himself, and he's thinking about all of his power and all of his creativity and all the, the things that he has done. I wonder whether he's remembering the dream from a year earlier. It's been a year. Twelve months have gone by. I'm, I'm, I'm speculating here, as I know you probably do in your own mind, but I would imagine that Nebuchadnezzar, as time went on, he, he probably even forgot his dream. Men not even have been thinking about it anymore. But now, 12 months later, as soon as he ushers these words, the angelic watcher, or the, what do they call him? Is it an angelic watcher? I'm, I'm adding the word angel, right? It's a watcher. The watcher is, speaks from heaven and says, yeah, today's the day. Remember that dream? You're going to be forced out. You're going to become like cattle, and you're going to be drenched in the dews, in the dew of the night and day, and you're, you're going to eat grass and your mind's going to be gone from you for a period of seven times. And in a moment, maybe it was in a moment, maybe it was instantly, maybe it was slowly. You know, I watched my father uh, in his dementia, some, dementia. Some of you have watched your loved ones, and, and the dementia comes slowly. You know, maybe, maybe Nebuchadnezzar's dementia came, maybe it was a slower process, or maybe it was almost instantaneous. I have a feeling it probably wasn't instantaneous so that Nebuchadnezzar would know what was happening to him. But, but in some, in some, at some point, he was absolutely insane, thought of himself as an animal. He lived as an animal for the next seven years. His hair became so long and matted, it looked like feathers. His fingernails grew so long, they looked like claws as, as he lived out in the field. I, I've wondered in my mind whether, whether his family chained him up, put, a, put a, a band around his neck and chained him somewhere just to keep him alive, how, where they took care of him at some level. Obviously, Nebuchadnezzar's son ruled during those seven years to keep the Nebuchadnezzar family line, you know, in power. His son obviously ruled for him while he's in this place, probably hiding his father from, uh, from everyone else. That's about the only way I can think that Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't have lost his, his kingdom. But just as quickly as it began, it ended. And all of a sudden, Nebuchadnezzar's mind began to clear. And the Bible says that he looked up at heaven. Verse 34, let's continue the story. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand to say to him, what have you done? Verse 36, at that time my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. 
Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. As quickly as it started, it seems to have ended, and Nebuchadnezzar's mind is restored to him, and he once again is able to lead in his kingdom, and he's once again receiving accolades from his noblemen, and they are seeking him out. And this is Nebuchadnezzar's testimony, and in his testimony at the conclusion, there are two lessons that he tells us that he's learned. And so what I'd like to do in conclusion this morning, and that doesn't necessarily mean anything, okay? But uh, what I'd like to do in conclusion, I just didn't want you getting your hopes all up that in the next couple of minutes we're going to get out of here. But uh, I do want to uh, conclude by looking at the two lessons that Nebuchadnezzar learned. Let's look at them. The first one is this. There is one God who rules the world and to whom we all must answer. Look at what he says about God. He says, God is the most high God. God is eternal. His kingdom is eternal one. His power, his dominion is from generation to generation. He says God is omnipotent. He doesn't use that word, but he says no one can stay his hand. I'm sure he probably would have agreed with King David when David said, Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. I think that's what Nebuchadnezzar understood. All of God's ways are true and just. One thing the Bible continually says about God is that he is just. Now, the biggest lesson I think that Nebuchadnezzar seems to have learned is that he himself is personally responsible to this God, that he himself has to answer to this God, that he, he may be king of Babylon. He may be king of the greatest empire that the world has known up until that point, but Nebuchadnezzar must answer to God. You know what's really kind of sad in a way is that, that God has done so much to bring Nebuchadnezzar to a place of faith already. He's given him a dream and he's given him Daniel to not only interpret the dream, but also to tell him what the dream was. I think that'd be pretty convincing in and of itself. And if you remember, he would say things like this, Nebuchadnezzar did. He said, everybody ought to worship the God of, uh, of Daniel. Everybody ought to worship his God. Evidently, everybody but me, right? Because I'm the, I'm the king of the empire. And then his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you remember that? He throws them in the furnace of fire, and, and they, they not only come out unscathed, but uh, there's a fourth guy in the fire with them. And so when they come out, they come out, King Nebuchadnezzar says, everybody, I tell you what, I'm going to burn you to the ground if you say anything against against their God, right? Everybody but, but me, evidently, because I'm the king of Babylon, and it doesn't apply to me. But in this case, in this case, something happens. And Nebuchadnezzar goes to being all about what everybody else ought to do to what he himself says. You know, I, I, I think this is, this is true. Often it takes God to break us before, before we're willing to break before him. Verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways are just. As he began his testimony, look back what he says in verse 3, how great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. Uh, you can't help but he's, he's talking about his insanity for seven years, but you know he has to be talking now about the furnace of fire and also about the dream interpretation at the beginning. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. 
In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, I, I read this to you quite often, and uh, it's because it, it is so foundational to, to who we are as people. But in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Listen, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness? Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they, that is mankind, are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of a corruptible man or of birds or of four-footed animals or of crawling creatures. That is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar has done. Time and time again, God has revealed himself, not just in creation, but in specificity to Nebuchadnezzar through the furnace and through the dream and who else, who, who, whatever else we, he might have done to show him. Nebuchadnezzar has had these specific things, and yet he's continued to suppress the truth in his life. He's continued to deny it, and it takes God breaking him with seven years of insanity. It was Nebuchadnezzar's seven years of insanity that breaks him. It's Paul's blinding light that breaks him. It's Jonah's big fish that breaks him. Nebuchadnezzar repented. So, so, so for us today, the lesson is the same. Have you learned the lesson of Nebuchadnezzar? Do, do you know that there is one true God who rules over one eternal kingdom to whom you have to answer? To you have to answer. Not to whom Gene has to answer, not to whom Kelly has to answer, or Dale. But you, you have to answer to this God. See, that's what Nebuchadnezzar kept missing. I'm too great. I'm too wonderful. Somehow, this doesn't apply to me. And so when God takes and humbles him, Nebuchadnezzar ignoring two big mercies from God to lead him to the place where he would bow the knee to God, which he would not. It wasn't until God broke him in insanity that he would bow the knee to God. Have you done that? And this is, I don't mean for this to be an evangelistic message, but it, there, there, is a, there is a sense in which this is a good news message challenging every one of us. You know, have you recognized the God of heaven who rules over an eternal kingdom that is forever from generation to generation to whom you are going to have to answer? Have you recognized that? And have you bowed the knee to him? Number two lesson that Nebuchadnezzar learns. He learns that, hey, this applies to me. Here's a second lesson that he learns. And, and these lessons are somewhat intertwined. But here's the second one. God humbles the proud. God is able, he says, to humble those who walk in pride. Nebuchadnezzar had been filled with pride. It had become evident. I mean, God waits to one of those prideful moments when you know, Nebuchadnezzar's pride is just bubbling out of him. You know, look what I have done. Look who I am. And it's at that moment that God begins to humble him. I'm going to say it again. I said it just a moment ago. But it, it's sad, isn't it, that so often our pride is not broken until God breaks us. He has to break us because we're so often unwilling to humble ourselves before the Lord. 
God broke Nebuchadnezzar. What is pride? Distilling it down, here's what pride is. Here's, here's the definition that I'm going to be operating on. Pride is the desire to lift up and exalt myself, or, or for all of us, to exalt ourselves beyond the place that is ours as God's creatures. It is wanting to raise ourselves up, believe our position is higher, exalting ourselves rather than accepting our position as God's creatures. So that means it is refusing to believe that God exists. Or if we do believe that God exists, it is refusing to believe that I owe my life, my existence to him, and I am unwilling to submit to him as God. That's what pride is. Pride is either refusing to believe that God exists, which, by the way, Romans 1, which I just read you, says the evidence of God is all around you. If you don't believe that God exists, I mean, how, how foolish is that? That's what God says, okay? So it's either refusing to believe that God exists or that if you believe he exists, that somehow or another, as God, he has the right to be your God, that you are the creature, he's the creator, you're the one that needs to be responsible to him, that you need to acknowledge his position as creator Instead of assuming that somehow or another you have the right to rule and reign and just live your life any way you want. Pride, pride is us being willing to submit ourselves to God. And I want to tell you something. The Bible is so full of comments about pride. Let me read you just a few. Psalm 10 verse 4. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek God. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. I mean, isn't that the description I just gave you of what pride is? It's refusing to acknowledge who God is. God says in Proverbs 8, 13, I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. Pride is the opposite of humility. Proverbs eleven two: when pride comes in, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. God thunders from heaven about pride. He says, the eyes of the arrogant will be humbled and human pride brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. What is in that day? That's talking about God's judgment, right? In that day, in that day, God is going to humble the arrogant. He goes on and, and he says, I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of of the ruthless. On the day of judgment, God will humble every man, woman, and child. On that day, we will all recognize him for who he is. And it's not just people. God, God hates the pride of nations, the most wicked of nations. God says, I will put an end to the pride of the mighty, and their sanctuaries will be desecrated. I mean, God does not coddle up to the pride of nations, when they somehow want to stand against God, he will judge them. James says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You know, there's one translation that I always quote on that. It's God stiff arms the proud but gives grace to the humble, right? That's, isn't that a football thing, you know, where you stiff arm them to, so you don't when they're trying to tackle you, right? The Greek word there for, for opposed or stiff arm is, is a word for arranging and battle against. So, so, so in, ess in essence, God says, I I'm, I'm arranging in myself in battle against you and against your pride. Peter would, would repeat the very same thing in 1 Peter 5, 5. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God's at war with the proud. 
It is believed that Satan, may, his, his fall may have been due to his own pride because there's a statement that seems to look past the king it's directed at to, to an angelic being. And it says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and I will make myself like the most high. So you see, pride is wanting to be, pride is not acknowledging that God has the right to rule in your life. It is not submitting to him. It is being like Nebuchadnezzar and saying, I, I am not responsible to anyone. I am sovereign over everything. And, and God says, no, you're not. You're not sovereign over me. You're not in control of me. And, and so, and, and so he, he continues. Solomon says, six things the Lord hates, seven are detestable. One of them is prideful eyes. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And that's nothing more than what Jesus said when he said, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And that is the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar learned, that God is able to humble the proud. And it's unfortunate that Nebuchadnezzar, it took him these, all, these, all these things that God did for him to humble himself, but he is fortunate. He is so fortunate. And you say, well, why does God give Nebuchadnezzar three opportunities like this to humble himself, but he didn't give that person one of those things? And, and that's a question I, I don't know. God is God. God has the right to do whatever he wants to do. For whatever reason, he, he gave Nebuchadnezzar opportunities that he didn't give others. But in his grace, eventually, Nebuchadnezzar humbled himself. And I want to tell you this. If you don't humble yourself, God will humble you. He will. And I'm not necessarily saying in this life. You remember, I can't remember the Psalm 77 or 78, but somebody's talking about how he almost stumbled because he looked around and saw the, the arrogant and the prideful just living it up and no regard for God. And he said, I saw the, the men and women who humble themselves before God and they're struggling and they're suffering. And I'm, and I'm thinking, wow, you know, God. And he almost fell, he said, until I recognized that there's coming a day of judgment. There's coming a time when God is going to reckon all things right, and he will humble the proud, and he will give grace to the humble. He will give eternal life in his kingdom to those who humble themselves now before him, but to the prideful, to those who just say, I don't need God, I don't want God. He says, you know, he will humble you. He will humble you. So I'm done. Both of these lessons are conjoined, conjoined. Uh, they're they're kind of like you, you can't separate them. There is a God in heaven to whom you will answer. So humble yourself before that God. So today, here's my, here's my application at the conclusion of this talk. And it's a twofold. It's a twofold thing. So let me start with the big thing. So if you're here today and you are still filled with your own pride and you have never bent the knee and humbled yourself before this God who is the creator of all things. He's, he's almighty. He's, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is forever and ever. If you've not bowed the knee to him, then today, let it be the day of your salvation. Let it be the day when you bend the knee to God and you receive him as king and creator and you give your life to him. Let th that, that be your day today. Now, for the rest of us, I look around and I see so many of you said, I've bowed the knee to God. I, I have trusted him as my creator and as my God. And I, I walk in faith and faithfulness to him. 
What I would say to all of us, let today just be a reminder that dealing with pride is not a one-time event. It's not one thing that I deal with today and it's done, right? Until, until the, the new kingdom and the new world, when God resurrects us with a different nature, until that time, we're going to struggle in this life with sin. And you're going to struggle with pride. And you're going to struggle with wanting to not submit to your creator. You're going to struggle with not wanting to bow down to him and, and submit your life to him. So what I want to say to all the rest of us is... Let's just walk in daily faithfulness and humility before God. Humble yourself before God. You know, when Peter writes, humble yourself before the mighty hand of God, and in due season he'll exalt you. When he says God stiff arms the proud or opposes the proud, but give grace to the humble, he's writing to believers like us. He's writing to us Christians. And you know why? Because Peter and James both recognize that this struggle to submit ourselves to this creator, as benevolent as he is, as loving as he is, as wonderful as he is, it's still a struggle to not want to usurp his, his, his position in our lives. Isn't that right? So let's take the admonishment from Nebuchadnezzar and from Daniel, you know, to submit ourselves daily in humility to our God. Thanks for listening. This message has been brought to you by Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, please visit us on the web at www dot baconscastle dot com